This is Nick Treadwell and you are listening to Nick Treadwell's Storyville. The plight of non-Nazi Germans in the summer of 1933 was certainly one of the most difficult a person can find himself in. A condition in which one is hopelessly, utterly overwhelmed, accompanied by the shock of having been caught completely off balance. We were in the Nazis' hands for good or ill. All lines of defence had fallen, all collective resistance had become impossible. Individual resistance was only a form of suicide. We were pursued into the farthest corners of our private lives. In all areas of life there was rout, panic and flight. No one could tell where it would end. At the same time we were called upon not to surrender, but to renege. Just a little pact with the devil and you were no longer one of the captured quarry. Instead, you were one of the victorious hunters. That was the simplest and crudest temptation. Many succumbed to it. Later, they often found the price to be paid was higher than they had thought, and they were no match for the real Nazis. There were many thousands of them. There are many thousands of them today in Germany. Nazis with a bad conscience, People who wear their Nazi badges like Macbeth wore his royal robes, who, in for a penny, in for a pound, now find their consciences shouldering one burden after another, who search in vain for a way out, drink and take sleeping pills, no longer dare to think, and do know and and not know whether they should rather pray for the end of the Nazi era, era their own era, or dread it. When that end comes, they will certainly not admit to having been the culprits. In the meantime, however, they are the nightmare of the world. It is impossible to assess what these people might still be capable of in their moral and psychological derangement. Their history has yet yet to be written. Our predicament in 1933 held many other temptations apart from this. The crudest, each was a source of madness and mental sickness for those who yielded. The devil has many nets, crude ones for crude souls, finer ones for finer souls. If you refuse to become a Nazi, you found yourself in a fiendish situation. It was one of complete unalienated hopelessness. You were daily subjected to insults and humiliations, forced to watch unendurable scenes had nowhere to turn to mitigate your own anguish. Such a situation carries its own temptations, apparent remedies that hide the barb of the devil. One temptation, often favoured by older people, was to withdraw into an illusion, preferably the illusion of superiority. Those that surrendered to this clung to the amateurish delentant, Delantish aspects that Nazi politics undoubtedly exhibited at first. Every day they tried to convince themselves and others that this could not continue for long and maintained an attitude of amused criticism. They spared themselves the perception of the fiendishness of Nazism by concentrating on its childishness and misinterpreted their position of complete powerless subjugation as that of superior, unconcerned onlookers. They found it both comforting and reassuring to be able to quote a new joke or a new article about the Nazi from the London Times. 
They were people who predicted the imminent end of the regime, at first with calm certainty, later, as the months went by, with even ever more desperate self-deception. The worst came for them when the Nazi party visibly consolidated itself and had its first successes. They had no weapons to cope with these. In the years that followed, this group was the target of a psychologically clever bombardment, bombardment with boastful statistics. They formed the majority of the late converts to Nazism in the years from 1935 to 1938. Once their strenuously maintained poise of superiority had been rendered unattainable, great numbers of these people yielded. Once the successes that had always, that, that had always declared to be impossible became reality, they conceded defeat. But he has achieved what no one else achieved. Yes, that's the trouble. Oh, you must just love paradoxes, don't you? A conversation from 1938. A few of them still hold the banner high. Even after all their defeats, they still prophesy the inevitable collapse of the regime every month, or at least once a year. Their stand has a certain magnific magnific magnificence you have to admit, but also a certain eccentricity. The funny thing is that one day, after they have stood fast through all their cruel disappointments, they will be proved right. I can already see them strutting around after the defeat of the Nazis and telling everybody that they had predicted it all along. By then, however, they will have become tragicomic figures. There is a way of being right that is shameful and lends its opponent undeserved glory. Think of Louis XVIII. The second danger was embitterment. Masochistically surrendering oneself to hate, suffering and unrivaled pessimism. This is perhaps the most natural reaction to defeat for the Germans. In their darkest hours, in private or in public life, every German has to fight against the temptation to give up completely once and for all, to let the world go to the devil with a wan indifference, bordering, bordering on compliance, to commit sullen, angry suicide. Oh, I am growing tired of the sun and light. Let creation crumble into empty night. It looks very her heroic. All consolation is utterly rejected, but the sufferer fails to see that this is itself the most poisonous, dangerous, vicious form of consolation. The perverse indulgence in self-sacrifice, a Wagnerian lust for death and destruction that is the most complete consolation for a defeated man who cannot find the strength and courage to face defeat and bear it. I make bold to prophesy that this will be the basic stance of Germany after it, is, after it has lost the Nazi war, the wild, headstrong wailing of a child taking the loss of its doll for the end of the world. There was already a lot of this in the German reaction to the defeat of 1918. In 1933, Little of the inner feelings of the defeated majority was rejected, reflected in public attitudes, because officially no one had been defeated. Officially, there was only celebration, things getting better, liberation, deliverance, salvation, intoxicating unity, suffering had to be kept quiet, yet embitterment was a typical reaction of the defeat, defeated after 1933. 
I encountered it so often myself that I am convinced that the number of those affected in this way must run into the millions. It's difficult to assess the external consequences of such an internal attitude. Occasionally it leads to suicide. Much more commonly, however, people adapt to living with clenched teeth in a manner of speaking. Unfortunately, they form the, the majority of the representat representatives of a visible opposition in Germany. So it is no wonder that the opposition has never developed any goals, methods, plans or expectations. Most of its members spend their time bemoaning the atrocities. The dreadful things that are happening have become essential to their spiritual well-being. Their only remaining dark pleasure is to luxuriate in the description of gruesome deeds. And it is possible to have a conversation with them. And it's impossible to have a conversation with them on any other topic. Indeed, it has gone so far that many of them would feel that something was missing if they did not have atrocities to talk about. And with some of them, despair has almost become cosy. Still, it is a way of living dangerously. It makes one bilious and can lead to serious illness and even madness. There is also a narrow side alley that leads from here to Nazidom. It, if it makes no difference anyway and everything is lost, then why not be, be bitterly, angrily cynical and join the devil's, devil's oneself? Why not take part, secretly cackling with scorn? That attitude is not unheard of. There is a third temptation I need to mention. It is one I had to fight against myself and again, I was certainly not, I was not the only one. Its starting point is the recognition of the danger of succumbing to the previous temptation. You do not want to let yourself be morally corrupted by hate and suffering. You want to retain good-natured, peaceful, amiable and nice. But how to avoid hate and suffering if you are daily bombarded with things that cause them? You must ignore everything, look away, block your ears, seal, one, seal yourself off. That leads to a hardening through softness. And finally, also to a form of madness, the loss of a sense of reality. For simplicity's sake, let me talk about my own experiences, not forgetting that my case should be multiplied by a hundred thousand or a million fold. I have no talent for hate. I have always been convinced that involving oneself too deeply in polemics and arguments with incorrigible opponents, hating the despicable, too much destroys something in oneself, something that is worth preserving and is difficult to rebuild. My na natural gesture of rejection is to turn away, not to go on the attack. I, have a, I also have a strong sense of the honour one does an opponent by denying to hate him, and I feel that the Nazis in particular were not worthy of this honour. I did not want to be on such close terms with them as to hate them. The worst affront I suffered from them was not their intrusive demands for me to join in, those were beneath thinking or getting upset about, but the, but the, but the fact that by being impossible to ignore, they daily caused me to feel hate and disgust, feelings that are so much against my nature. Could I not find an attitude that avoided being forced to feel anything, even hate or disgust? Could I not develop a serene, imperturbable disdain, taking one look and then moving on? What if it cost me half or even 
need be all my external life. At just this time, I read a dangerous, alluringly ambiguous sentence of Stendhal's. He wrote it as a coda after the restoration of 1814, an event that has that he felt to be decent into in that he felt to be a descent into a quagmire, just as I viewed the events of 1933. There was one thing he wrote still worth the toil and trouble, namely, to hold oneself holy and pure. Holy and pure. That meant not only steering, it, steering clear of all participation, but also of all devastation through pain and any distortion through hate. In short, from any reaction at all, even that caused by rejection. Turn away. Retreat into the smallest corner if you have to. If you can only keep it free from the polluted air so that you can still save undamaged the only thing worth saving, namely, to use the good old theological world, your soul. I still think there is some justification for this attitude and I do not repudiate it. However, simply ignoring everything and retreating into an ivory tower the way that I imagined it then was not the right thing to do. I thank God that my attempt to do so failed quickly and thoroughly. Some of my acquaintances' attempts did not fail so quickly and they had to pay a high price to learn that one can sometimes only save the peace of one's soul by sacrificing and relinquishing it. In contrast to the two ways of evading the Nazis, this third way did find a kind of public expression in Germany in the following years. Literary, literary idols sprang up suddenly and flourished everywhere. In the outside world, even in the literary circles, it has, got, it has gone unnoticed that, as never before, so many recollections of childhood, family novels, books on the countryside, nature poems, so many delicate and tender little baubles were written in Germany in the years 1934 to 38. Apart from open Nazi propaganda literature, almost everything that was published in Germany belongs to this genre. In the last two years, it has declined somewhat, apparently because the effort required to achieve the necessary harmlessness has become too great. Up until then, it was uncanny. A whole literature of cowbells and daisies, full of children's summer holiday happiness, first love and fairy tales, baked apples and Christmas trees, a literature of obtrusive intimacy and timelessnessness manufactured as if by arrangement in the midst of marching, concentration camps, armament factories and the public displays of Der Sturmer. If you had to read quantities of these books, as I did, you gradually felt that, in all their quiet tenderness, they were screaming at you between the lines, Don't you see how timeless and intimate we are? Don't you see how nothing can disturb us? Don't you see how unaffected we are? See it, please. Please, we beg you. I knew some of the writers personally, for each of them were very nearly the moment has since come when it became impossible to go on. Some event that could not be blocked out by earplugs, maybe the arrest of a close acquaintance or something like that. No childhood reminiscences can shield one from that. There were some serious breakdowns. There were some sad stories. I will tell one or another when the time comes. Those were the conflicts that Germans faced in the summer of 1933. They represented a choice between different forms of spiritual death. 
People who have lived in normal times may well, may well feel that they are being shown a madhouse or perhaps a psychopathological laboratory. However, there is no avoiding the fact that that is the way it was, and I cannot change it. Incidentally, these were still relative, relatively innocuous times. It gets much worse.